right. In this episode, we're talking about Atlas Shrugged. If you haven't read it, you absolutely need to read it. It was one of the most eye-opening books I read. Yeah, spoiler alert. We're going to talk about the whole thing. And it's a great book. And people don't pay as much attention as they should. It should be mandatory reading for everyone. It's It's, awesome. This should be in the high school canon. If it wasn't 100 pages long or 1,000 pages long, I feel like it might make it. Yeah. And if all the government and education and the media didn't hate it (laughs) with a passion... Then uh, it'd probably be more successful. Yeah, probably. But if you're not a mooch, you're going to love this book. (laughs) When you say mooch, what do you mean? Are you referencing uh, the book? Yeah, so the book, they'd call them looters is what they're called. Which, by the way, it's a book, but it's also a three-part movie. (laughs) Don't watch the movie. (laughs) (laughs) They change. (laughs) What do you think of the movie, Brant? (laughs) The movie was bad. Don't watch the movie. All right, so the funny thing about the movie... (laughs) for all of our listeners, is they change out the actors every single movie. And every part. It's three parts. Every part of the movie. Um, so you're kind of constantly, you know, trying to figure out the new one. It's kind of fun because you're like, well, this person played the role the best and this person played the worst, but there's not a lot of continuity in the movie. I have a feeling they had a difficult time getting people to stick around. <laughs> but I think it, their third movie also had some budget issues because <laughs> they probably spent too much on the second movie, hoping that they would make maybe some more money from that. Yeah. But if you're not the reading type, basically the overall plot is the country, the U.S., is decaying economically. And it follows these business leaders, guy that produces steel, woman that runs the railroad, guy that produces coal. So like these industry leaders, it follows them. And basically what's happening is the government is is creating a bigger and bigger welfare state, a bigger and bigger regulation state. They're basically making it harder and harder for these industrial companies to keep on operating and saddling them with burden. So what all these people do instead of fighting that as they have over the past years and decade is eventually they say, if you're going to make it this hard to run a business in America, then I'm done and I'm going to quit society and I'm going to move to some valley in the middle of the mountains and I'm going to watch the world fall apart around me because you're telling me that you're basically disincentivizing me from helping other people and you keep on messing it up. Get out of the way, but you keep on messing it up. And so it follows that whole trajectory. And that's where the story pretty much leaves is United States and economic ruin, but people, capitalists that escape and start their own little utopia um, are able to at least survive and bring their values together and escape the crushing weight of the system. Is that a good synopsis? Yeah, that was great, dude. I can't believe you did that unrehearsed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if people will really need that. Maybe they should just read Wikipedia. But if you've ever been the person in a group project, and I'm not saying this is me because it's definitely not me, and sure as hell is not Brant, but if you've ever been the person... <laughs> In a group project that was the one carrying the team and you just felt like quitting and saying, all right, guys, how about you finish the project without me? That's pretty much the story. And then your team isn't able to finish the project. Right. And then, (laughs) But you've left to a different... You somehow got assigned to a different team. So you're getting 100 on your project, (laughs) but it's totally isolated from everyone else. And your team is left behind with the rubble of whatever work you had done for them, um, but they're unable to make any any sense of it so they end up getting a zero and you still earn a (laughs) hundred 
So why do you like Atlas Shrugged so much? Because I think you had actually read it before me, and then you suggested I read it, read it, and I had read it in. Uh, well, I finally decided to read it during the beginning of Corona. Yeah, yeah. I think I liked it so much because, kind of like the Matrix, I thought it was an analogy for you know what we were, where we currently were in the world, and I thought it pointed out so many truths that I thought were obvious, and I would kind of make these arguments to people as well, you know, at my job or wherever else, I'd say, hey, well, this doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? Why are you forcing me to do it like that? Um, you know, leave me to my own devices and I will produce value for the organization or whatever it is. But that, and those arguments kind of fell on deaf ears. And I read this book and I saw, you know, all the characters are having the same struggles that I was having. And it lists out exactly or it shows, it doesn't list it out, but I mean, it shows throughout the narrative exactly what's causing these problems. And it's just like you said, the government imposing more and more regulations, more more and more restrictions, more and more of a burden, additional taxes, essentially taking and taking and taking from these producers until they're taking 90, 95% of their production. And they're making it so hard for for them to keep the system functioning because it's become so inefficient. And they're supporting more and more of, as the book calls them, looters. And I just thought it was really well done. So, And I could relate to it. I think that's why I liked it so much. Yeah, I think if you go through life, especially in the education system, especially listening to the mainstream media, and you were only paying attention to that, you would think, wow, well, these people are all getting exploited. And the reason for failing failure is that, you know, these major corporations, they don't pay enough money or something like that. There's not enough socialism in society. Yeah. Then you get in touch with the real world and at least what I would say, the real world. And you realize actually the socialist pieces of society are the most broke, the most pathetic, yeah, the most inhuman parts of society. How many times do we have to run this experiment? Haiti and Dominican Republic, North and South Korea, North and South Vietnam, East, West Germany. It happens every time. And it doesn't matter if it's a, to me, it doesn't matter if it's a centralized dictator socializing everything like Chavez or some other quote unquote dictator, or if you want to call him communist, that qualifies as communist or whatever. Or if you piecemeal nationalize everything, which is essentially what we're doing in America, is we're piecemeal nationalizing everything. Instead of nationalizing schools, which most of them are government schools, even if they're a private school, a lot of times they're relying on government funding that comes through the states, which relies on government funding coming through the nation, through federal level. So to me, it's a total counterculture punk statement of know what the establishment, what the media, what the education system thinks is wrong and right is completely wrong. It's completely false. This is what is actually sick and disgusting in our society. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think one of the things Anne Rand, the author, did is, you know, she made it pretty provocative by essentially saying that it is morally right or good to be selfish or self-interested, which I mean, I've gone back and forth on this. If, if I, I don't think I totally agree with, with that point that she makes. I think she does that more to be provocative, like I said, and gets the people going. Absolutely. But I do agree with the, the other points she makes, which are, or what I think she was really trying to say, which is it's the fundamental values that she's professing, right? For individual liberty, individuals to own what they create, it is theirs to do with what they will. And if you leave people to their devices and allow allow these extremely competent people to develop, create, innovate without hindering them and without taxing them, right? They will create something of value that already boosts the entire society. 
society or the entire world. If it's a new technology, the entire world is going to get to use it. If it's a new power source or a new uh, material, whatever is developed, we already are experiencing the, be the benefits from it just by through its creation. And they and the person who created it ought to be rewarded. Like that is what is morally right. They should be rewarded financially for their creation if it's good and worthy of you know financial compensation which you know in our book all these people are creating brand new either materials or uh, creating some infrastructure for a railroad like you said that doesn't exist or hasn't been done before so I think it's that value that she's really pointing out um, because if you just if you make the argument or you're sitting on you know the media and the other people's side of the fence about Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged in general you're saying well selfishness is wrong and so I disagree with Ayn Rand and again I mean if you look Look at what the antagonists in the book are doing. It's essentially the media and the government. They have a few main characters in both. And they are using their power of media and power and control of government to enslave, right, these business people, take from them, take their creations, take their money, take their time, their, the value that they've created and redistribute it. And they're doing this in the, in the sake of self selflessness, right? But ultimately, they are becoming more powerful by doing this because they're giving it to the masses who are voting them and giving them more control and power or feeding into what, you know, what they're pushing out through the media. And so I would say that those people are also acting selfishly. That's why I think when people say that Anne Rand is just pushing for everyone to be selfish, I think that misses the mark on what she's really saying. Yeah, I don't agree 100% on everything that she says. I think that there's room for nuance there. I think that if I was to address the selfish piece, you know, it's natural and it's permissible. It's okay to be self-interested to the degree that you're not harming another person. Yeah. Right. And that's where so many of these counter philosophies like socialism, Marxism, that type of thing, get it wrong. Where, you know, they see someone who owns a factory and they just assume immediately that they're harming other people, right? They're harming their employees because they're not making as much money. They're harming people abroad because they're exploiting, you know, cheap labor or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and certainly there could be an evil factory owner. I'm not saying that, but... It's not inherently evil. It's not inherently evil. A lot of times they just hate people being successful. Right. And they're selfish too. They're just not successful, right? Yeah. And, and they're covering it in... And in they're a... covering it in selflessness. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know, I wasn't able to build anything, achieve anything, do anything of note. So instead, I'm going to lobby the government to take your shit and redistribute it to me and people like me. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think if we're going to talk about the few nuanced things that, that might be wrong with Atlas Shrugged, I mean, the other one is I think how she portrays all business owners to be good, right? Like you talked about, you know, there could be an evil business owner. And in fact, I think a lot of the problems we have with capitalism or we don't really have capitalism here because of the government. Uh, but the reason we don't is because of government interference, right? And I actually think think that a lot of business owners, I know that a lot of business owners get in bed with the government in order to push policy that, that benefits them. I mean, the business owner has the money. We're talking about large corporations here, not small business owners. But yeah, these large corporations have the money to lobby. They have the money, they have the power, the control to get the government to to implement laws, regulations that benefit them. And so it's almost like this battle of yeah, the workers are lobbying the government to impose restrictions on the factory owner. And then the factory owners are lobbying the government in order to be either the only factory owner that's able to produce a certain thing or 
or whatever else they're lobbying for in order to further consolidate their power and monopolize. And I mean, the obvious solution to me is the government should not be involved in that situation at all. Otherwise, you're going to create this battle of enslavement, right? The, the workers are fighting for the government to enslave the factory owner, and the factory owner is fighting the government to enslave either his competition, other factory owners, or the workers. Yeah. So the, the obvious evil here is the government. Yeah, or at least mediating through the government. And to the degree, I totally agree. I don't think they do a cynical, she does a cynical enough job of, because of, you see James Taggart and how he's naively thinking, oh, well, this is good for everybody. So I'm going to do this change or that change to the railroad, right? I don't think it flushes out with enough detail the cynicism and the tactic of using government and regulations to beat other businesses over the head, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I don't think there's any, even anything wrong with lobbying government. In many cases, I think it's fine, especially when people are campaigning to just get government to leave them alone, right? But the issue is for every person that's doing that, there's another that's getting government to become a a club that they're using to hit their competitors with. Right. And even more common, I think, is rent-seeking behavior, right? Where it's trying to lobby government to pass bills to fund my specific thing in particular, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the worst because, I mean, think about the amount of rent seeking there is in America. I mean, you're, ta- you're, wh- why am I paying taxes for wind production? What <laughs> are you talking about? What are you talking about? Why am I paying for that? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you can say a lot more than wind production, but yeah. Well, I mean, why are we paying taxes to other countries or why are we giving money to other countries? Why are we giving assent to another country? <laughs> no one knows. Zero. We should give zero to another country. None. Yeah. What do you think about... Uh, so, like like we said earlier in the synopsis, Blake was talking about how these you know business people continued to work, the competent people continued to work even as more and more burden was put on them, and eventually they quit instead of trying to fight to survive and fight to keep society alive. They just quit and said, yeah, uh, you guys, good luck. If this is how you want to run things, go ahead. My business is yours. And then they go off into Gold's Gulch, which is this hidden utopia, and they live by the values that they want to live by with other people who who think likewise to them. What do you think of that solution? Or do you think that there's a different, better solution than leaving everything to burn and not worrying about it? I mean, this this basically goes to the self-preservation versus altruism talk, right? Because the altruistic person says, no, you've got to fight these looters, right? These rent seekers, these socialists, these looters as much as possible all the time to your dying breath. The Galt's Gulch approach is, all right, looters, go ahead and ruin the country. I'm going to go chill with my, my homies in the mountains and uh, good luck. And, you know, I don't know. I think it's entirely, it's kind of like with self-interest in general, like, like I said already, I think it's entirely permissible and even almost like the default. It's perfectly fine to do that, to go to Galt's Gulch and abandon the system. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I also think that it is a selfless action to fight that type of behavior and those types of values. I absolutely think so. You think it's futile to try and... It is futile. And I mean, it's it's kind of like asking, you know, you've got, you know, you're whatever, you're Rome and you've got barbarians. Is it better to, you know, try and retreat and save whatever of your unit you can have left or whatever? Or 
forward to face him and take as many down as possible. Like, depends on your perspective, right? Yes, it's futile. And Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> and Atlas Shrugged, it's futile. And in the piecewise nationalization of America, it's probably futile. There's no turning back Social Security. There's no turning back Medicare, Medicaid, or any of these other things. There's no turning back the claws of the federal government that have dug into our medical education, all of our professions. So just letting it collapse may be the only reasonable thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could fight it. It is possible to change. It's just a matter of like, can you can you win? And I don't think you can. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. I I would. I mean, the only part I disagree with is I don't think you can fight it. I, I mean, you can fight it, but like you said, yeah, it's pointless. It's futile. Yeah, yeah. There is nothing to be gained from it. Other, in fact, you're just going to slow down. I think the entire process of of its collapse anyway, which is worse for everyone. Yeah, but up to a certain point, it's not futile, right? Like before the battle is lost. Yeah, probably like 1912 when they <laughs> added the <laughs> income t- federal income tax to the Constitution. Then it was futile? I think so, dude. I mean, that's the thing about about government, man. I mean, you said it yourself. They're never going to get rid of these programs and systems. I mean, the government gets it bigger. Only, it only moves one way. It only grows. Right. Now, if, like there was something, if there was something that, you know, reset all of our laws back to... And I mean, we've talked about this before off, off the podcast, but even just a decade or every 20 years, a reset button back to just the Constitution... Um, but the problem is, I mean, that's not going to work either because it'll get to a point where they have this massive stack of laws and bills that they automatically sign off on at that immediate day. Right. I mean, that's essentially the budget every year. Right. And look how that's going. Right. You think that they're going to reduce the budget? You think they're going to pay down the debt? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, I guess they will pay it down, right? It's just that the dollar won't mean anything. Right. They'll point. print it and pay it. Yeah, I guess I guess the interesting piece to me is also, you know, an Atlas Shrug, John Galt delivers this this monster of a speech, probably about a hundred pages out of the a thousand pages of the book. So ten percent of the book about his values and how this is all happening and from his perspective what's going on. And basically, you know, a hundred page capital capitalist monologue. And I think the takeaway, and it's been a while since I read but read it, but I think the takeaway is that people were swayed by this. I don't think it's that easy to do with people. I don't... No. Like, you're trying to convince the masses that capitalism is desirable. I mean, I think you have demographics and education against you. Like, it's only moving in the other direction, right? So, I guess you can't explain the way out, aka capitalism. The only thing you can do is let them face their consequences. And, you know, maybe that is a healthier way to live. Screw them. (laughs) You know? And actually, you know what? Now that there's Bitcoin and, yeah, Bitcoin and the crypto world is only growing, you know, I think Bitcoin is going to enable people to just leave. I mean, you think about that same Atlas Shrug scenario. How does that change when people can put their life savings in their head and escape instead of walking away from their companies? Because that's the thing that gets people, right? Is They don't want to leave behind what they have or what, what they've, they've earned. Done. Right. Yeah. And, and it's just one. It's just one. You just have to comply with this one regulation. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to fight this tooth and nail, but I'll do it. And then three years later, something else gets added, right? And you, you can't ever say that's enough because you can't just, most of the times, you can't just pack up your business and leave and where would you leave to bitcoin solves almost all these problems yeah i mean i agree dude i think 
before I knew about Bitcoin, I actually felt like kind of hopeless because I knew, I mean, I knew I had to fight because this is, like you said, this is what I have. I want to keep what I've earned. I want to keep what, you know, what I've done up to this point in my life. And I want it to be valuable and mean something in, in our society and the way we're headed. It's not going to be. And so I was stuck fighting a fight that I knew was futile, but I did it anyway because there was no other option. And like you said, with Bitcoin, I mean, there's the way out. Yeah. It is so incredible that, yeah, I can do whatever I want now. Yeah. I can, I can literally quit. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting because you have all these sci-fi and futuristic books about, you know, people declaring independence in space, right? Or like Galt's Gulch and people just finding their own little valley where they get together with other capitalists and other freedom-minded people. But that's occurring right now. And it's on the internet. Galt's Gulch is on the internet. <laughs> The internet has declared independence from all governments. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and this is another thing I've, I've considered is, I think all these human patterns, it's almost like everything is ramping up in frequency, right? Like the cycles of, of an empire used to be a thousand years, right? Now it's a hundred years or something like that, right? So you have the entire cycle of a civilization, of a country from, you know, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create <laughs> bad times, right? Mm -hmm. or you have the whole cycle of a country. And I think, you know, that used to happen over the course of hundreds of years and generations and generations. And I think that that process will accelerate through the future because think about a country that, oh, I don't know, maybe let's imagine like in Argentina, right? A lot of food and, and uh, livestock production. They pass a bunch of unfavorable laws for that production because they want, you know, to become more socialist. People pull, pull the old Galt's Gulch on them, put most of their money in Bitcoin, and then they go and live in Western U.S. Yeah. They go and live in Africa somewhere. You go and live in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. It's harder to do, obviously, with with industries, but as, as we're more and more location independent, I think this is going to happen all the time. Yeah, I think so, too. And it's going to accelerate, as you described, the collapse, because in previous times, you know, What's the likelihood of someone picking up and leaving and having their own and trying to fight, right? Whereas you've just made it way cheaper for people to save all of their wealth and then move and escape. Mm -hmm. Just so we're clear, it wasn't the government that, that made it way easier for people to, to save their money and, and escape with their wealth. It was Satoshi. <laughs> Who is Satoshi? 